Well, praise the Lord. Living in the light from Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 to 14. In his uh, biography, one of the founding fathers of the United States was uh, Benjamin Franklin. And he, he writes, uh, he tells the story of wanting to convince the citizens of Philadelphia to light the streets at night as a protection against crime and safer movement at night. And when he failed to influence them by his words, he, he bought an attractive lantern and placed it on, on a long bracket and extended it from the front of, of his house. And each evening at dusk, he would light the wick. This is before electricity, okay? And his, his neighbours would, would notice the, the warm glow in front of his home. And passers-by appreciated the way the light helped them make their way, you know, over the, the rough cobbled, cobblestone streets, because that's what they used to be like. And soon others began placing lanterns. They liked the idea, placing lanterns in front of their homes as well. Eventually, the whole city recognised the need for well-lighted streets. Just hold on to that story. This morning we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we consider the lessons on on light. Let's remember that we are in the section where the Apostle Paul is, is now applying some of the great theological principles that we looked at in the first half of the letter. And remember that these, are, these theological principles are now being applied to the believer who is living in a pagan world. You cannot read this section of Paul's letter without seeing that our world, as we spoke of last week, our world hasn't changed all that much from 2,000 years ago. And all sexual misconduct all unconstrained greed is incompatible with Christianity because a Christian is one who has seen the light so he no longer has any excuse for indulging in the darkness. He's not ignorant. He can't claim ignorance. He can't say, well, I didn't listen to the announcement. I don't know what the Bible says. I don't know what God wants me to do. He's he's not caught up in some web of deceit that is spun widely across our age through the different media. He's not brainwashed by the propaganda that is out there. If you are brainwashed, it's your choice. He knows the truth. So he must live accordingly. As we know, light is used in the Bible as a very powerful image for God's work. Right at the beginning, creation begins with the earth being formless and void and covered in darkness. And it is at that point that God's creative word 
brings light. Let there be light. Have you noticed how the Bible, in our expression, we use the expression, we, we say it's black and white, right, as a contrast. But the Bible doesn't use black and white. What it does use is the metaphor of darkness and light to explain many things, mainly sin and salvation. And when the prophets spoke of the incredible event that was coming ever since the fall, there was already, there was already the, the announcement that something great was going to happen. And when the prophets, like Isaiah and others, spoke of this incredible event that was coming, they said, the people walking in darkness have, what, seen a great light. Isaiah 9.2. Then in the New Testament, the prophecy is fulfilled. And, And John starts his gospel by saying that through the word, all things were made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light that shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the passage this morning, that transforming power of light is described as the means by which change happens in our lives. And it's a supernatural change. This is not from us. This is not some course that we do, but this is the work of God in our lives. Let's look a little deeper at the different functions, therefore, of light and then apply it to our lives. First of all, verse 8, light shines. This is pretty obvious, light shines. Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Let's remember that in chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul told us that we were dead in our sins, and in chapter 4, verse 17, that our thinking was futile. But now he goes a little further by telling us that we were darkness. And you probably think that's that's a, a bit over the top, it's a bit of but it's not. It's it's not an exaggeration. We were not just in a state of sin and surrounded by darkness, we were darkness, that is what it's saying. And again, let's step back a bit. The whole normal state of the world, in fact the whole universe, is complete and utter darkness. If you were to step out into space and it was possible to turn off all the stars and switch off the sun, what would happen? Just total darkness. What is darkness? Well, they describe it as the absence of light. Well, that's not very helpful. Darkness is darkness. Thank you, Paul. Wiser now. You measure the speed of light, but we don't measure the speed of darkness. Why is that? Because darkness is darkness. It just is. It uses no energy, 
just happens. That's what it is. That's the natural state of things. Yet here Paul is not describing the surrounding environment that we live in, but the constitution at the very core of our being as being darkness. And like I said, it takes no effort or energy to be darkness. You just are. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to train for it. You just let things happen. Do what comes naturally. This is why it's very dangerous to say that. Now, I don't think any one of us would appreciate being described in such harsh terms. You're probably thinking, well, come on, it can't be that bad, surely. A bit sick, a bit lost, weak maybe, disturbed perhaps. But to say that we are dead and dark seems to be a little bit too far. The Bible is being honest with us. To consider our condition as anything but darkness and doom for destruction will lead us to, to play down God's grace and to ignore the need to look to Christ for salvation. It minimizes God's work on the cross. But thanks be to God that a radical change has taken place in our lives. It is impossible to be darkness and light at the same time. Do you notice that? We are not yin and yang. You know, the yin and yang thing? Where, and because in, in, in that philosophy, in yin and yang, you know, they, they, they say that opposite and contrary forces are actually complementary and interdependent in the natural world. But in Christianity, you're either one or the other. There's no yin and yang. At the start of our chapter, we were called to be imitators of God. Remember that? And the Apostle John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And since we are now light, I'm not saying that, that's what the Bible says, there are ramifications to that. And that is why the Apostle Paul moves from the indicative, this is what you are, to the imperative, this is what you must do. And therefore notice the command that follows, live as children of the light. There is no in-between state. There is no fifty shades of grey adjusted to how seriously you want to live your Christian life. You're either hot or cold, you're light or darkness. There's nothing in between. You can't be half this and half that. You're one or the other. It's all or nothing. 
Verse 9, what does light also do? Light transforms. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Another version, the ESV, says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. As we know, most of life, the natural world, um, the plant and animal world and humans, they depend on light for survival. Biology tells us of the importance of light for health and growth of living cells. You stick a plant in a basement and soon the leaves shrivel and die. Only mushrooms enjoy the musty dark. But when the light of Christ enters our lives, it follows that there should be some evidence of the changed life. There has to be. So if you don't want to be transformed by the light, what you've got to do is you need to stop, you know, put the shutters up, stop exposing yourself to what the Bible says. You need to stop praying. You need to stop coming to church. Stop hanging around Christian people. Because that is going to expose you to some degree of light. Like on a plane, you know, you're travelling through different time zones and, the, and you just want to open the light. Everything is dark inside the plane and suddenly you want to open the window and there's just really big light and then the stewardess comes across, please put the, put the shutter down, please, because everybody else is trying to sleep here. I don't care how beautiful it is outside, we're trying to sleep. So if you don't want to be transformed by the light, stop wasting your time hanging around the light. But if you do want to take the Christian life seriously, then be more exposed to it. Take it seriously. If you're serious about growing as a believer, simply follow the analogy of the effect of light on nature and, and the, the text here mentions some of these, these things that will be as a result, that will be evident in your life as a result of being exposed to the light. First of all, it's goodness. Well, here it is a natural fruit of, of light, goodness, natural fruit of light. It comes right after kindness, Goodness comes right after kindness in the fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, it is God who defines what is good. And goodness is love in action. That's what goodness is. It's it's having a a generous and selfless heart, a willingness to, to look beyond yourself and see the needs of others. Rather than being selfish, you are communal. You think of the community, you think of others. One way to see if this fruit is growing and displayed by you is whether you are thinking less of self and more of others. The other word here is righteousness. 
goodness speaks of a giving heart. Righteousness adheres to what is right. To the issue of integrity. In our standing before God, righteousness is what impulsed us to give it is given to us. Righteousness is something that is given to us through Christ. It's something that is imputed to us when we become believers. Jesus Christ imputed his righteousness to us. That is justification. So righteousness means that the rightness of character before God and the rightness of character before men. You will do the right thing. Goodness, righteousness, and then truth. Truth is the absence of falsehood, of deception. Clearly goes together with righteousness and it gives an anchor to reality. They say that if you always speak the truth, you don't need to have a good memory because the story doesn't change. Now, if you tell one person one thing and another another thing, then you really need to have a good memory. Did I tell this person that? Or This is because truth is beautiful. Now, I know. I have to qualify that because you might not appreciate truth as being beautiful because if, if you've gone through a speed radar and the fine comes in the mail... And he said, you know, you did 75 kilometres an hour. And you said, no, it wasn't. Well, you don't like the truth. I'm not going to say it's beautiful because you like it. I'm saying it's beautiful of its simplicity. It states a fact. It's only when you, you try to avoid the obvious that you try and, well, it's down the hill and, and, and there was another car behind me who was pushing me, Your Honour. Well, now you have to, you know, add up to the story and, and, and go for extenuating circumstances why you were over the speed limit. Or worse, you even tried to hide the truth. I wasn't driving the car. It was somebody else. It's only when you do these things, when you avoid and trying to go around and around that things get complicated. An example of this came recently from our capital. It's called Canberra, by the way, where a whole lot of public servants work, or they're supposed to be working, and, and the, the health secretary, the, the, the top person in, the, in all of health in Australia, right, Dr. Brendan Murphy, he was asked a simple question by a, a senator. You know what the question is. What is a woman? What is a woman? It took some weeks for Dr. Brendan Murphy to have his staff to draft an answer. It took a long time, right? So finally we got a response and he came um, on Friday, we had the answer. This is the 
The answer, 78 words to describe what is a woman and I will read it for you because the truth is just too obvious. We need to, you know. And this, and I'll quote, this is what the answer is. The frameworks adopted to define a person's gender include chromosomal makeup, the gender assigned at birth and the gender with which a person identifies. The Department of Health does not adopt a single definition. Health policies and access to health programs are based on clinical evidence and clinical needs for all Australians, regardless of gender, identity, biological characteristics or genetic variations. Our programs are designed to be inclusive and to provide better health and well-being for all Australians. End of quote. That's the definition of a woman. Now, because a lot of men identify as women now, so we can't identify a man. Um, So, upon receiving the answer, Senator Antich, who originally asked the question, rightly described it as absolute drivel. Absolute drivel. This is a senator. You see what happens when when you can't tell the truth? And these three come as a unit. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Good, right and truth. They come as one package. They should not be separated. So when you are confronted with a decision, we ask, is it good? Is it right? Is it true? You cannot have goodness without righteousness because it becomes empty, empty and, and sentimental. And having righteousness without goodness, it becomes harsh and judgmental. And ultimately, it all has to be grounded and anchored in what is true and not in a lie. You see, in construction, there is only one position 90 degrees, that is perfectly vertical. It's called the plumb line. Anything, any half a degree from that, and it's already not plumb. That is what the truth is. It's perfectly plumb. Verse 10. What else does light do? Light directs. And find out what pleases the Lord, it says. There is a reason why we have headlights in the front of our cars. Especially at night, they're very useful. And it also helps to tell others where you are. That you're, there's an opposite, <laughs> there's headlights here and somebody coming from the opposite direction, they can see you as well. The Lord has instructed us in his word what pleases him. We know what pleases the Lord, it's in his word. It's not that hard. This is why in Psalm 119 we read, 
in, in uh, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It directs you. And in verse 11 of the same psalm, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So this transformation through the gospel will enable us to find out what pleases the Lord. And the word to to find out means to test, to prove, to discover, to lead you, to direct you. And meditating on God's word is the means by which we determine what is good, what is right and what is true. Do you notice that we all live, we all are living our lives trying to please someone and a whole lot of actions, good and bad, result from that, right? As kids, we started off by wanting to please mum and dad. Then as teenagers, we wanted to please our friends. And then as adults we settled down and we just wanted to please ourselves. I'm wondering if at any stage our actions were directed at trying to please the Lord. The light of Christ, you see, in our lives will transform us. Not only as as evidence of what Christ has done in us, but it will be evidence others will see that our lives have been different because of the light of Christ in our lives. Because they will see that we have been changed because we are wanting to please the Lord. Not to please others, not to please ourselves, but to please God. Next, light exposes, verses 11 to 13, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Light not only exposes what is good, but also what is bad. A surgeon will find it very difficult to perform surgery without light, wouldn't he? And if he is trying to remove a tumour or a cancer from within you, he better have jolly good light. Bible reading does the same thing, and it is essential to read the scriptures. But it is not enough by itself. Let me explain. The the scriptures, the word of God brings light, but it cannot impart sight. Because you see, many people read the Bible as just another book. A book on history, a book on poetry, a book on morals. And that's about it. Haven't you heard people say, well, I've read the Bible, 
but it didn't do anything for me. Why is that? Well, A.W. Tozer once said, the gospel is light, but only the spirit can give sight. You need the spirit of God to reveal truth. Spirit and truth. Look at the Pharisees. They looked straight at the light, the light, not just any light, the light of the world. They looked at him for three years, three and a half years, and, and not one ray of light reached their hearts, except on a couple of individuals like Nicodemus. And this is why the inward work of the Holy Spirit is necessary for saving faith. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to read God's Word. I mean, that's the testimony of Augustine, for example. He was there in a garden and he heard God's voice, God's Spirit, say to him, he heard a voice saying to him, read it. Read it. Read, you know, read what? Well, the Scriptures were right there and he started reading. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal truth, to open our eyes. And God has many tools, trials. He has many things in his toolbox to, to get us to the point where we are open to receive the truth. Unfortunately, some people change their ways when they see the light. Others only when they feel the heat. Someone said that, and I think it's very true. And feeling the heat could mean an accident, a near-death experience, financial meltdown, whatever. God can use all of those things to bring us to himself. So while it is our responsibility to abstain from sin, our calling actually goes further than not doing sinful things. And while we cannot expect unbelievers to behave like believers, nevertheless, we are still called to call it out. But there are a couple of things that we need to be aware of and, and, and hold these things in a, in a very delicate balance, as we will appreciate shortly. Firstly, we are told to expose them. To expose them. Expose what? The deeds of darkness. The word expose carries the idea of correction or discipline. There comes a point where we will have to confront sin rather than tolerate it. There are times when we must speak the truth in love, but we must speak it. And remind especially believers, if the people are believers, that what the Bible says about what is right and what is wrong. One of the great developments this week, for example, after decades, after decades of, of praying and trying to get things changed, Roe versus Wade, the US Supreme Court has overturned the abortion laws in the US. That is at a federal level. Now the states are obviously have to deal with it themselves. But that is a very important development. Suddenly, the Supreme Court has recognised 
the sacredness of life. And so many Christians have been praying about that. Secondly, and this is where we need to be delicate, is that it says we are discouraged from mentioning it. We need to be careful how we handle things that are shameful. The motto can very easily become, tell it like it is. And yes, there are circumstances we can just tell it like it is. But we need wisdom. Because it can be... uh, it can be dangerous to simply revel out, revel and expose the filthy things of darkness. In my years as, as a Christian and as a pastor, I've, I've heard many testimonies of people tell the stories, especially in front of a congregation. They come in and tell their stories of the things that they've done. And It seems like they've placed more weight on their sins rather than on the Saviour who rescued them from the sins. I'm sure you can relate to some of these stories. We don't want our lives to become, even our past lives, to become an unconscious advertisement for sin. Also, some things are to be handled with as few words as possible. To talk about sin in a way that spreads it and glorifies it is shameful. And sometimes I think, especially when I was young, I could hear some people envy the freedom of others who were living in sin and almost, you know, gee, I wish I could get away with that. God doesn't want us to do that. Don't envy the life of the pagan. Don't. Don't fall for the, the, the stuff on social media about they're doing this and they're doing that and nobody seems to care. Don't envy them. They are lost. They're unbelievers. This is the way they live. And while pagans seek to hide their shameful conduct and even many times call their sinful conduct good or natural, what comes natural, Christians have a a higher calling and must imitate the life of the Saviour who has saved us. And so therefore we we need to be clothed in his perfect righteousness if we are to be imitators of God. And lastly, light awakens, verse 14. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It's, um, it's hard to remain in bed when the sun is, is rising and, and shining in the morning, isn't it? You just want to get up. It's a call to wake up. When the sun rises, it's a call to wake up and get things going for the rest of the day. In the same way, the sinner rises from not just from his sleep, but from the dead when the light of Christ shines on them. The Apostle Paul, what he's doing here, he's paraphrasing 
the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, which is found in chapter 60, verse, verse 1, and which was our first reading this morning. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings of the bright to the brightness of your dawn. They say that these words that the Apostle Paul is quoting here uh, are most likely the words of a Christian hymn, an earliest, one of the early Christian hymns that they used to sing during baptism. Because here you, you see the, the imagery of, of life before Christ as being dead and then rising up. And last night, one of the songs actually spoke about this. It also echoes the events of that glorious Easter morning when Jesus rose from the dead. It was the dawning of a new day for the world, for history, for all of eternity. And because of Christ, Christians are not sleeping in sin and death, that is not our normal state. Salvation is the beginning of a new day. It's like Jesus is calling us, has called us from outside the tomb where Lazarus was, you know, his putrid body was decaying inside the dark tomb for days. And then he heard the words, Lazarus, come forth. That's the same voice that you need to hear to come to salvation. Finally, remember how I started with a story from Benjamin Franklin who had his light on. And soon others followed because they saw the benefits. Jesus also told us that we are like lights on a stand, on a hill. We don't like, we don't, we are not called to have our lights hidden. But so that others may see it. May our lives be a blessing to others so that they too may be spiritually awakened to see the light of Christ and give God the glory due to his name. Amen.